If you have a Bible, you can take it out. The first passage that we're going to end up looking at is in 2 Kings 9. In fact, most of the verses that we're going to look at are in 2 Kings 9 and 10. This is a pretty narrow window as we talk about the life of Jehu. Wednesday nights, we're talking about kings. And for most of us, the Old Testament is confusing for a number of reasons. Number one, it's a big book. Number two, uh, there's a lot of names in it. And number three, it's not strictly chronological as you go from Genesis to Malachi. And so in the midst of all those names and places and uh, all those different books within the Old Testament, sometimes you just get lost. And so at the risk of redundancy, each week in this series, I just want to set each of these kings in the context of the history of Israel as a nation and of the leaders that led Israel. And so all of that goes back to the Exodus when Moses led the people out of Egypt into the wilderness. Moses is the first leader of God's people. You can go back and read the stories about Moses. The people did not always like him. They didn't always appreciate his decisions. They didn't always want to listen to what he had to say. But Moses was the undisputed, even though at times they disputed it, he was the undisputed leader. God made that clear over and over and over again. So Moses is the first leader of God's people. Moses mentors Joshua. And Moses doesn't get to go into the promised land, but his task at the end of his life is prepare Joshua to lead the people into the promised land. So Joshua leads them in across the Jordan River, and they fight at Jericho, and they fight in the north, and they fight in the south. And he's a godly man, and he's a good general, and he dies at a ripe old age, and he goes off to his inheritance. And Israel slides into a period that we call the judges. These guys are tribal warlords. Israel quickly turns away from Yahweh, and God sends all of these different pagan nations to punish them and to subject them and to try to get their attention. And in their distress, they call out to the Lord, they cry out to the Lord, and God will raise up one of these judges, or sometimes they're called saviors. And they would sort of save the people in one particular place for one particular period of time, and then when the judge would die, everything would just sort of start over in a, a destructive cycle, a downward spiral. Samuel is the last judge. He's a godly judge, but his sons are not godly, and things don't look great as Samuel is getting old and he's coming to the end of his life. And so the people decide they want a king. And we've talked about this several times on Wednesday nights. God had told the people, you may select a king when you come into the land. It wasn't that they never were to have a king, but God told them, this is what the king ought to do. This is what he ought to be like. This is who he ought to be as a person. And this is what his character ought to be like. And they did not end up with a godly king in Saul. Saul flames out in a, a tragic story. David takes the throne. He's a man after God's own heart. He does not worship idols. He does not chase after the Baals or the Asherah, but he makes plenty of mistakes in his life. And then you come to Solomon. Saul, David, and Solomon all reigning over Israel as a united kingdom. And then after Solomon, the kingdom splits into two. And we've talked about these two first kings after this civil war, after this split. Rehoboam is the first king of Judah, and Jeroboam is the first king of Israel as a distinct nation separate from Judah. So all of the kings that come after Jeroboam are wicked. All of the kings of Israel are wicked. Well, I was talking with Jake today. He said his study Bible 
listed Jehu as half bad, half good. And I said, scratch that out. He's bad. He's bad dude. Not a good dude. Scratch that out. That's not right. All these kings of Israel are bad. Some of the kings of Judah are good and godly, and some of them are not. So Jehu is a king in Israel. He is the tenth king over the nation of Israel. So tonight, when we talk about Jehu, we're really talking about a story of violence. So if you're a middle school boy, this is right up your alley. But it's really not just something that appeals to middle school boys. It's really something that appeals to all human beings. And you may say, well, I don't like violence. I don't. I'm just talking about human beings in general, Americans in general. We have a fascination with violence. And at the same time, we're terrified of it and we're repulsed by it. And when you see it in real life, it very quickly makes your heart beat fast and you can feel a pit in your stomach. And yet we're also sort of drawn to it in strange ways. And I'll give you a few examples of this. In college, I've told you this before, Brooke and I had an elective to fill and we took a class uh, in the psychology department at West Texas A&M called Serial Killers. All we did in the class is study serial killers. And it was part terrifying and depressing and horrific and don't act like you wouldn't have enjoyed it. It was part really interesting. It was fascinating. And in, I remember the tension in that class of reading about these guys. Most of them are guys. They're all guys. And studying about them and what they did and why they did it. And you just were sort of left thinking, this should not be interesting. This is terrible. And real people were involved. I mean, it's horrific. We kind of chuckle at it, but it's horrific stuff. And yet... There's also a fascination that we feel in this. And you know it's true. You maybe haven't taken a college class like that as an elective. But if I put two documentaries on TV, one on Jack the Ripper or John Wayne Gacy or whoever, and then another on Mother Teresa, and you look at the Nielsen ratings, there's going to be five people watching Mother Teresa and five million people watching the serial killer documentary. There's an appeal to it. It's not that we like it. It's not that we necessarily want to emulate it, but there's a fascination with violence. We love movies. We pay a lot of money to watch movies that highlight violence, that center around violence. Uh, movies about serial killers. We could just start listing them off. Very successful at the box office. And the entire horror genre. You may, as an individual, not like it, but we're coming up on Halloween, and there's going to be horror movie after horror movie after horror movie on TV. And people love watching these movies where the most horrific things happen. And if it were to happen to you or someone you know in real life, it would be absolutely crushing and devastating. But there's some attraction to that. There's some fascination with it. Shows like Dateline and 48 Hours usually center around some sort of violence, some experience of violence and how it's not solved or maybe it was solved in the wrong way and they're trying to figure that out. Shows like CSI, not a reality show, but just a primetime TV show. And the focus of the show is violence and murder and gore and all the rest of it. Even when we think about great leaders in history, the ones that we make documentaries about on History Channel and Discovery Channel and all the rest, they tend to be terrible, horrible dictators whose 
reigns and rules were marked by totalitarian control over their people and millions and millions of people died. So you make a documentary on Hitler, a million people are going to watch it. Make a documentary on uh, Chairman Mao. A million people are going to watch it. You make a documentary on any of these evil, cruel, horrific dictators, and people have some sort of fascination with it. This is a story about Jehu that is all about violence. And I'm saying this on the front end. There's some of the stuff that we're going to talk about that Jehu does that with all of the distance we have in geography and time, you read some of these stories, and on one level, you can't help but chuckle and say, this is terrible stuff. Uh, Literally, me and Corey and Jake sat down and talked about Jehu today, and I said, these are terrible stories. They're absolutely horrific. I don't even know why some of these are in the Bible. Other than you come away saying, this guy was really, really rotten, and violence marked his life. And As we read this and as we think about Jehu, there's this strange repulsion to all of the violence and also attraction and interest in all the things that happened in his life. So let's talk about Jehu. I'll preface this by saying there's lots of Jehus in the Bible. If you just search on a search engine or a Bible software for Jehu, you'll get all kinds of hits. There's only one of the Jehus that we're trying to talk about. We'll try to laser beam on him tonight. So Jehu in the Bible. Jehu was the son of Jehoshaphat, not the one you're thinking of. Okay, another Jehoshaphat. He was the grandson of Nimshi, and he was a commander in the army of Israel under Ahab. So I bring this up to tell you that Jehu was not part of the royal family at all. He was a military man. He worked in the army. And there's a passage that we're going to look at in just a minute in 2 Kings 9 verse 5 that suggests he wasn't just a commander in the army, but he was the commander in the army. He might have been the top general for for, uh, Ahab. So he's a very important man in the army. Just saying that alone, lived in the ancient world, and he was a general in the army, that alone tells you that violence was baked into this guy on some level. And we're going we're gonna to try to flesh that out a little bit tonight. So he's a commander in the army of Israel under Ahab. Next, while Ahab was still on the throne of Israel, the Lord told Elijah to anoint Hazael king of Syria, Jehu king of Israel, and Elisha prophet in his place. And I'm going to let you go back and look at 1 Kings 19. But I think you remember the general story. You remember when Elijah faced off with the prophets of Baal, right? Ahab and Jezebel, they get their 850 prophets and they meet on Mount Carmel and they're going to have this contest to call down fire on the sacrifice. Corey referenced this when he taught on Ahab. So the prophets of Baal go first, nothing happens. Then Elijah goes and the fire comes down and it's this amazing, amazing victory for Elijah the prophet. On the heels of that, Jezebel mouths off to Elijah and says, I'm going to kill you. And Elijah, who has just won this incredible victory, runs off like a scalded dog with his tail between his legs and he starts crying and throwing a temper tantrum and he's mad at God and he just wants God to kill him and he's the only one who loves the Lord. It's pitiful. It's absolutely pitiful. He just loses his mind. This is a a Snickers hangry commercial. 
He just completely has a breakdown, mental, emotional, spiritual, on every level. He just completely loses it. And so God is very patient with him, and he sends him to Mount Horeb. And he feeds him along the way, and he lets him rest, get his strength back, and he sends him to Horeb. And then you remember there's this strange story at Horeb where he's in this cave on the mountain, and the Lord sends, let me get them in order so I don't mess it up. The Lord sends a wind, then he sends an earthquake, then he sends a fire, but the Lord is not in any of those spectacular things, the tornado or the earthquake or the fire. He's not in any of those spectacular, visible, dramatic things. He's in the small, still, quiet whisper. And he talks to Elijah, and the point that he's trying to make to Elijah is, I'm not going to do miracles every time things get tough. Jezebel wants to kill you. I'm not going to send fire from heaven to blow her up. I'm not a miracle machine that you just come to me and tell me what to do, and I just make all the problems go away. That's not the nature of this relationship. He's not in the wind. He's not in the earthquake. He's not in the fire. He's in the still, small voice. And in that still, small voice, God speaks to Elijah, who wants to quit, and he says, I'm not done with you yet, so you need to suck it up. And I want you to go anoint Jehu to be the new king of Israel. And I want you to go anoint Hazael to be the new king over Syria. Yes, God is sovereign over not just Israel and Judah, but all the nations. He sets up kings and he brings them down. And Elijah, I want you to anoint Elisha to be the prophet when you're gone. He gives him this task and he sends him off to do this. Now there's one problem with that task. When he says, anoint Jehu to be king of Israel, it's not like they were taking resumes, okay? They did not have a job posting on Monster or whatever the popular job website is today. They weren't looking for, you know, applicants to come in and interview for the position. They already had a king. And I mentioned this last week, this gets really, really confusing when you get into this part of the story. There are multiple Jehoshaphats. There are multiple Ahaziahs. There are multiple Jehorams. There are multiple Jehoashes in both nations. And when you read through this, you really start to think you're losing your mind. In fact, this last week, your pastor started to lose his mind a little bit as I was going through this. I actually texted Jake and Jason this morning, and I said, okay, I'm about to start reading my notes. I had written this a few weeks ago. I'm about to start going over my notes. Have you found any mistakes? Now, I bragged on Jake last week. And if you see Jake tonight, he's walking with his chest puffed out because he will tell you that he found a mistake two weeks in a row in me processing all these names and thinking through it. But I'm here to tell you, honest to goodness truth, I found it on my own in studying today before Jake had the chance to point it out to me. So I'm just telling you, I gave him credit last week. I am not giving him credit two weeks in a row, okay? But here's why I tell you that. It's confusing. It's really confusing to read this back and forth of these nations and all these guys have the same names. These families, you remember with Ahab and Jehoshaphat, these families intermarried, these two royal 
dynasties intermarried, and they all just start naming their kids and their grandkids the same thing over and over. They're not creative with names. They just pick the same names over and over, and it's very confusing. So let me give you a a little visual. I'm a visual person, so this will help me thinking through some of these people. Okay, Jehoshaphat, king of which nation? Judah. He's the king of Judah. He had a son named Jehoram. He gave his son Jehoram to be married to Athaliah, the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel. You tracking with that? Jehoram, the prince of Judah, married to Athaliah, the princess of Israel. So these two royal families overlap. And we talked last week about how Jehoshaphat was just sort of a pushover with bad influences. He did whatever Ahab told him to do. Then he did whatever Ahaziah told him to do. Then he did whatever... Jehoram, Ahab's son, told him to do. He's just a complete and total pushover. So all that we talked about last week. Now let me add this other side, okay? This is outside of the royal family, and we're going to add Elijah and Elisha and an unnamed prophet that we're about to talk about. Elijah, Elisha, and an unnamed prophet. These guys aren't kings. They're prophets. And they end up anointing Jehu, to be the king of Israel, and the only problem with that is Israel already has a king at the time, and his name is Jehoram, the son of Ahab. Clear as mud? Easy peasy, right? Here we go. The anointing of Jehu actually took place at the hands of an unnamed prophet who was sent by Elisha, the successor of Elijah. There's an unnamed prophet. And this is a pretty funny story. We're going to read just a part of it. 2 Kings 9, starting in verse 1, says, Then Elisha the prophet called one of the sons of the prophets and said to him, Tie up your garments and take this flask of oil in your hand and go to Ramoth Gilead. And when you arrive, look there for Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, son of Nimshi, and go in and have him rise from among his fellows. He was eating with all the other generals and all the other military commanders. Lead him into an inner chamber, then take the flask of oil, pour it on his head, and say, Thus says the Lord, I anoint you king over Israel. Then open the door and flee. Do not linger. This is pretty funny. So, remember, God told Elijah to anoint Jehu, and as far as we know, Elijah never did it. But he probably passed it down to Elisha and said, hey, I never got around to that. You need to do this. Elisha starts thinking about it, and he knows what kind of person Jehu is. We're going to see in just a minute what kind of person he is. Elisha knows. And for whatever reason, Elisha says, I'm not going to do it. So he calls a son of one of the prophets. So this is like taking the new guy at work and giving him the worst job, right? Hey, I got a job for you. Greenhorn, here we go. Rookie, I want you to go. There's a party of all the military leaders. I want you to walk in, find him, take him in a back room, dump the oil on his head, tell him he's the king, and run out as fast as you can. So that's exactly what he does. He goes to this party. All these guys are eating. He walks in, son of the prophets, and he says, Jehu, I need to talk to you in the back bedroom. Jehu gets up. They go in the back bedroom. He takes the oil dumps it on his head. He says, you're the next king of Israel, and you're supposed to kill Ahab and all his family. And then he hightails it, and he literally runs away. And Jehu, he's left in the back room with a a wet head, oil dripping down his head. So Jehu walks back into the party, 
And he looks at all his buddies and he says, that's real funny, guys. That's funny. You, you got the young guy to come in here and dump the stuff. That's funny. Uh, congratulations, you got one on me. And they look at him and they say, we don't know what you're talking about. What, what happened back there? And he says, well, the guy dumped oil on my head and he told me I was the king of Israel. Even though we already have a king, he told me I was the king of Israel. And he told me I was supposed to kill Ahab and all his family. And all these military guys just say, well, you're the king. We're with you. Just like that. Power shifts. Remember, there's another man who is the king. And that's where things begin to get really, really violent. They're not so much funny anymore. It's just really, really horrific stuff. And so I want you to see this. Jehu was responsible for horrific violence in Israel. Horrific violence in Israel. And I'm going to give you six examples. Number one, Joram. That's the same Hebrew name as Jehoram. It's just a diminutive form. It's a shortened form like Dan, Danny, Daniel, same guy. Joram, who is the king of Israel, and Ahaziah, who is the king of Judah. He kills both of the kings. The sitting king of Israel, whose job he just took, and for good measure, the king of Judah. He kills both of these guys. Joram, the son of Ahab, and Ahaziah, the king of Judah. He comes to this town. He's headed to this town. This is a a small detail, but I think it tells you something about Jehu. He's riding to this town where both of these guys are hanging out together. And he's in his chariot. And the watchman on the wall, looking through the glass, sees him coming. And he says, I think that's Jehu. And everyone immediately gets scared. Because they know what kind of guy this man is. They don't know why he's coming, but they know what kind of person he is. And so they send a messenger out to say, hey, what kind of mood are you in today? And Jehu says, get behind me. And they send another messenger out, and he says, hey, is everything good? Are we cool? And he says, get behind me. And he's riding into this town, hunting down Jehoram, Joram, and Ahaziah, and they're watching him right in. And look what we read in 2 Kings 9, verse 20. Again, the watchman reported, he reached him, the messenger, he reached him, but he's not coming back. And the driving is like the driving of Jehu, the son of Nimshi, for he drives furiously. Jake and I talked about this. We have no answers. I don't know what it looks like to drive a chariot furiously. Maybe you just picture 42nd Street at rush hour. But they're watching him come, and they know it's him, and they know he's mad. And when he gets there, he just immediately starts a fight. And Jehu takes an arrow, and he shoots Jehoram right in the back, right through the heart, and he kills him. And then he sends his men to hunt down Ahaziah, and they do the same thing to Ahaziah. And just like that, the first thing he does is he kills the sitting king of Israel and the sitting king of Judah. Next, Jezebel. Corey talked about Jezebel. At this point, Jezebel is a widow. She's the widow of Ahab. And she's a bad lady. She's a really, really bad lady. And Jehu sets his sights on Jezebel. He's going to kill her. So she runs away. She goes to this town, Jezreel. She goes up the tallest tower and locks the door. And she thinks, I'll just stay up here. 
And Jehu gets there, and I'm just going to describe it to you like the text describes it. He gets there, and he looks up, and there's a couple of eunuchs up there with Jezebel. And Jezebel starts talking trash immediately. She starts talking trash. Oh, you're the new king. Okay, okay, you're the new king. Okay. You're like these other pretenders. And Jehu looks up, and he says to the eunuchs, throw her down out of the window right now. And they throw her down out of the window, straight to the ground. She dies. And then with their horses, they literally trample her to death, or she's already dead. It's not entirely clear, but they trample her. And then, again, I'm telling you these details not just for curiosity's sake and fascination, but so you know what kind of person Jehu is. They throw her out of the window. They kill her. They trample her with their horses. And then they go eat dinner. And while they're eating dinner, a fulfillment of prophecy, dogs eat Jezebel down to the bone. And they come back out to bury her, and all that's left is bones. So example number two, Jezebel. Example number three, Ahab's sons. Ahab's sons. This is when you get to chapter 10. Look at 2 Kings 10, verse 1. Ahab had 70 sons in Samaria. So like a lot of these kings, he's a polygamist. He's married to Jezebel, but he's got concubines and he's got other wives and he's got all these sons. He's got 70 sons who live in Samaria. Jehu rolls up to Samaria. Again, this is the kind of guy he is. He says, look, there's one of me and there's 70 of you. Pick the biggest, baddest, toughest, meanest son of Ahab. Send him out and we'll fight. And then you can send out another one and I'll fight him too. All of you, one at a time. It's 70 on one. 70 to one. And do you know what the 70 say? We don't want to fight. We will be your slaves. We don't want anything to do with fighting you. We will work for you. We will shine your shoes. We will scrub your toilets. We will wash your dishes. We will do whatever it is that you want us to do. And what ends up happening is Jehu rounds all 70 up. He cuts all their heads off. He puts it in a basket. And then he piles them up at the city gate. 35 in one pile, 35 in another pile. Kills them all. Next. 42 relatives of Ahaziah, and this is Ahaziah, the king of Judah, the same king who's already been killed by Jehu. There's this random story about 42 of his relatives. There's no secret significance to the number 42. You don't need to divide it by seven and multiply it by this and times it by this and decode. There's nothing to decode. It's just 42 people, 42 human beings. Remember, these two lines are intermarried. So they're basically going from Judah to Israel for what amounts to like a family reunion. There's 42 of them, minding their own business, just going to visit. He kills all of them, wipes them out. Next, Ahab's family in Samaria, all the rest of his family. 2 Kings 10, verse 17, when he came to Samaria, he struck down all who remained to Ahab in Samaria till he had wiped them out, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke to Elijah. Last, the prophets of Baal. And this might be the strangest story of all of it. Just a, a bizarre story. How many of you were here a couple of months ago when Ron Hinesley preached about the Rechabites? We're in the book of Jeremiah and Ron preached about the Rechabites. The Rechabites are in this story. 
Jehu is rolling into town and he meets up with these Rechabite guys and they get in the chariot and they ride in. And his mission or his plan is to kill all the prophets of Baal. And so he comes into town and he basically tricks all the prophets of Baal. And he says, hey, we're going to have a party and we're going to sacrifice to Baal. So I want you to put on your best Baal robes and I want you to come to the temple of Baal and meet me there. And they all show up. They're all there. It's packed. The building is packed. And they think they're there for a sacrifice and they think Jehu's going to participate in this sacrifice. And he basically goes through the crowd and he says, now look, we don't want any worshipers of Yahweh here. Anybody worship Yahweh? He makes sure there's no worshipers of Yahweh, only worshipers of Baal. Then he locks the door and he sends in 80 armed men to kill everybody in the temple. He kills all of these prophets of Baal. And look what happens in 2 Kings 10, 27. They demolished the pillar of Baal. They demolished the house of Baal and they made it a latrine to this day. This is a bad guy. He's a really bad guy. And that's his story. You, you meet him, and he just starts killing people. And he keeps killing people. And then he kills some more people. And a few more. And then about the last thing you read about him, he's killing people. Just a violent, violent man. So Jehu executes judgment on the house of Ahab. And the text presents this as what God wanted him to do. This was punishment for Ahab. But he also walked in the sin of Jeroboam rather than the law of the Lord. I don't have a great explanation of this to give to you other than to say this is who he was. Look at 2 Kings 10. Verse 28 says, Jehu wiped out Baal from Israel, but Jehu did not turn aside from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. That is the golden calves that were in Bethel and in Dan. And the Lord said to Jehu, because you've done well in carrying out what is right in my eyes and have done uh, to the house of Ahab according to all that was in my heart, your sons to the fourth generation shall sit on the throne of Israel. But Jehu was not careful to walk in the law of the Lord, the God of Israel, with all his heart. He did not turn from the sins of Jeroboam, which he made Israel to sin. I don't have a great explanation for this other than to say to you that he cared about commandment number one. We're not going to worship Baal. We're only going to worship Yahweh. But he had absolutely no regard for commandment two. We're not going to worship idols. And you understand, these calf idols or a direct callback to the book of Exodus when the people make a calf idol coming out of Egypt and they call the calf idol Yahweh. They don't think they're making up a new deity. They think they're worshiping Yahweh in a creative way. God thinks it's idolatry. You don't get to worship the right God the wrong way. You have to worship the right God the right way. That's commandment one and two. Commandment one, worship the, the only one and only true God. Commandment two, worship him the way he wants to be worshiped. Jehu pays careful attention to commandment one. He completely ignores commandment two. And he clings to these calf idols from Jeroboam. And as a result, God starts to cut off parts of his territory, parts of Israel, as a punishment, as a consequence. He just starts to cut off to different nations. And this is maybe one of the most fascinating things about Jehu when you study him, not only in the Bible, but historically. Look, 
within Israel, he's a bad dude. 70 versus 1. We'll just be your slaves. We don't want to fight you. I mean, he's driving furiously. They know him from how he drives his chariot. Everyone is terrified of this guy. Elijah doesn't go anoint him. Elisha won't go anoint him. They send this unnamed guy, this rookie, and they say, as soon as you do it, you better run as fast as you can because he'll probably kill you because that's what he does. He kills people. So you better run away as fast as you can. He's a really bad dude. However, let's put it in perspective to what was happening in the broader Middle East at the time. If you were to visit the British Museum, you would find this uh, artifact. It's called the obelisk, the black obelisk of Shalmaneser III. Okay, it's a historical artifact from the nation of Assyria. And there is a portion, it's actually the top portion on this side of the obelisk, and I've blown it up for you right here, that one, two, three from the left, standing up with the long beard, is an Assyrian king. Guess who's down on his knees paying homage? Jehu. Jehu. Big bad Jehu. One verses 70, Jehu. I'm going to kill them all, Jehu. The king of Assyria marches on him, and he immediately gets on his face and pays him off with the bribe. It's a record from Assyrian history. In a little pond, he's a big fish. Out in the ocean, he's nothing. He's absolutely nothing. It's a pretty good reminder for us when we deal with things in life that seem like they're a really big deal to us at the time. God has a different perspective on things than we do. Sometimes the things that seem so big and so scary and so bad to us are just not big things to God at all. Jehu ruled Israel for 28 years. His dynasty ruled for a total of five generations, and he died. If you look at 2 Kings 10, you keep reading in verse 32 where we left off. It says, in those days the Lord began to cut off parts of Israel Hazael defeated them throughout the territory of Israel from the Jordan eastward, all the land of Gilead, the Gadites, the Reubenites, the Manassites, from Aror, which is by the valley of the Arnon, that's Gilead and Bashan, the rest of the acts of Jehu and all that he did in his might, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? Jehu slept with his fathers, they buried him in Samaria, and Jehoahaz his son reigned in his place. The time that Jehu reigned over Israel in Samaria was 28 years. In the end, he dies. It is interesting that his dynasty, we'll come back to this in a minute, but his dynasty is the longest dynasty within the nation of Israel. And so here's the dynasty of Ahab. I'll just put the names or of Jehu, excuse me. Jehu, then Jehoahaz, then Jehoash, then Jeroboam the second, then Zechariah, and then a man named Shalom comes into town and assassinates Zechariah, and you have a new dynasty. So that's a story. It's just violence from beginning to end. Violence, 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 killing, killing, killing. So what do we do with that story? How do we apply it to our lives? Number one, sin always has consequences. You can look at Jehu and you can look backwards and you can say that Ahab's sin and Jezebel's sin had a consequence and the consequence was named Jehu. And he came and completely wiped out their line, and it was horrific. It was really, really bad. Not a good situation. Sin has consequences. God promised 
to bring judgment on Ahab and Jezebel and their line. You can also look at Jehu in this story, and as you just read killing after killing after killing, at some point you begin to say to yourself, this guy likes it. He likes it. He's not like King David who was reluctant to kill Saul even when he had the opportunity. He's not like King David who was reluctant to punish and to kill and to put down the rebellion in his own house when it was his own son. But he likes the killing. He likes the fighting. He likes the bloodshed. And there's a consequence coming for Jehu. His line eventually ends with an assassination. Sin always has consequences. This will continue as we talk about some of the future kings that come after Jehu. Secondly, this is a big one when you think about Jehu's life. Fighting against wickedness and lies is not the same as standing for righteousness and truth. Fighting against wickedness and lies is not the same as standing for righteousness and standing for truth. And you read it right here at the end of his life at chapter 10. God has this evaluation. He says to Jehu, you have done well in carrying out what is right in my eyes. You have done to the house of Ahab according to all that was in your heart. The sons of the fourth generation shall sit in the throne. But he was not careful to walk in the law of the Lord, the God of Israel, with all his heart. And he did not turn from the sins of Jeroboam, which he made Israel to sin. He did what God told him to do. He took out Ahab in his line. He took it too far. He got caught up in the moment of all of it. And he relished it and he enjoyed it. shouldn't have done that. He did what was right in getting rid of Baal, even if he did it in a sneaky, underhanded, backhanded way. He stood up against these things that were bad, but he did not stand for anything that was good. He did not follow the law of God. And that's why Jake's study Bible gives you this. Well, he was half good, half bad. Like He did some good things, but he also did some bad things. And that's where I come back and say, he's a bad guy. He's a really bad guy. He loves violence. That's not celebrated anywhere. It's honest. Old Testament is honest about violence, but it's not celebrated anywhere in the Old Testament just for the sake of violence. But he loves it. He relishes it. And he does not walk according to the law of the Lord. I think this is really important for you and me when we live in 2021 And all you have to do is turn on the TV or open up social media to see all sorts of wickedness and terrible stuff. And here's the thing. As Christian people, when you live in a culture that not only practices wicked things but celebrates uh, wicked things and demands that you approve of and applaud and give a nod of the head to wicked things, you have to stand up against wicked things. You have to fight against wickedness. And you've got to have backbone to do that. But that's not enough. You also have to stand for something that's true and for something that's good and for something that's right. And you have to live your life in obedience to, to the Lord. And you know as well as I do, there's plenty of, let's just call them traditional Americans, who look around at the way culture has changed and they say, oh, things aren't like they used to be. Things aren't like they used to be. I don't like all this newfangled stuff going on in the world. It's bad. It's gross. I don't like it. 
I ain't going to stand for it in my house. Well, that's good that you see those things for what they are. The question is, are you going to make a stand not just against wickedness, but for the Lord Jesus Christ? And there's a pretty good lesson here in Ahab that if you don't do both, you might as well do neither. Because here's a guy who only does one. He stands up against the bad stuff. He gets rid of Baal worship in dramatic fashion. And he gets rid of Ahab and his wicked family in dramatic fashion. But he refuses to walk in the law of the Lord. You better make sure you do both. Fight against wickedness. Stand for righteousness. Third, beware the danger of ignoring God's word. We talked about this a little bit last week. We talked about Jehoshaphat. You remember these prophets, the Lord kept sending these prophets to Jehoshaphat. Sometimes Jehoshaphat did really stupid things. And one time the prophet came and said to Jehoshaphat, look, we know you love the Lord, but why do you keep hanging out with these goobers? What are you doing? Why are you friends with these people who hate Yahweh? What is the matter with you? And to his credit, Jehoshaphat listened and he repented and he led the people to follow the Lord. What about Ahab and what about Jehu? These two guys are bound up together. You can't talk about one story without talking about the other. Ahab and Jehu. You understand, Ahab lived at the same time as the great prophet Elijah. Elijah was around to visit anytime he wanted. But do you know what Ahab called Elijah? He called him the troubler of Israel. You can't help me. You only create problems for me. He didn't want to listen. He refused to listen. You understand that Jehu, who took out Ahab in his line, lived while Elisha was preaching. I mean, there's all these stories at the first half of 2 Kings about Elisha, all these miracles, miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle, more miracle stories about Elisha than about Elijah. God's giving all of this evidence to Jehu. You ought to listen to that guy. He makes an axe head float. He feeds widows with almost next to nothing. He fights with the armies of heaven. You can't see them, but they're there. I mean, miracle after miracle after miracle. He raises the dead. You should listen to him, but he refuses, absolutely refuses to listen. I think the application for us is we sit in this room on a Wednesday night. We sit in this room on a Sunday morning. We come to Bible study midweek. We meet in small groups. We go to Sunday school classes. We listen to preaching on podcasts. We get on YouTube and watch our favorite preachers. We have all this access to preaching, to the truth, to the word of God. Do you listen to it? I don't mean, does it register in your eardrums? I mean, do you actually listen to it? Do you allow the word of God to change your life? These men heard it. They heard it from two of the greatest prophets who ever lived, Elijah and Elisha. And both of them, Ahab and Jehu, absolutely refused to listen to what God said to them. Beware the danger of ignoring God's word. Next, the timing and the providence of God are beyond human understanding. I'm going to admit to you some things I don't know. I don't have answers to these questions. I'm going to raise the question, I don't have an answer. Why 
did Almighty God make the decision to be done with Ahab and put Jehu on the throne and then wait year after year after year after year after year after year while Ahab and Jezebel wreaked havoc in Israel? Why did he wait and allow all that to happen? I don't have an answer for that. I have no answer. Why, once God put Jehu on the throne and it was clear that he was not going to give up the sin of Jeroboam, these two golden idols, this idolatry, he was not going to turn from it. Why did he let him live out his reign and then his son and his grandson and his great-grandson and his great-great-grandson? Five generations in all. The longest family dynasty in the nation of Israel. Why did he let them stay on the throne? I don't have an answer for that. There's a million things that happen in the world that you and I look at and we say, why is God allowing that? I don't have an answer for that stuff. I don't have an answer. Here's the closest thing I can give you to an answer. When you read these stories in the context, not just of 2 Kings 9 and 10, not just in the book of 2 Kings, but the Old Testament and the entire Bible. This is as close as you can come to an answer. God is in control. He's sovereign over all things. He's working in and through history. His providence extends over everything. Who Elijah's successor is going to be, who the king of Syria is going to be, who the next king of Israel is going to be, none of this stuff is a mystery to him. He's not trying to wing any of this stuff or figure it out as he goes. He has a plan. And you and I, with our teeny tiny pea brains, can look back and nitpick and Monday morning quarterback the plan and say, well, I don't really understand why you did that. Or you can watch the news or you can look at events in your own life unfold and say, God, I don't really like the way things are going right now. I don't quite understand what's happening. But here's what's clear when you step back and you read it all in the big, the big picture. God's at work. Your little teeny tiny pea brain doesn't have to understand it all. Never does God ask you to understand all of it. He asks you to have faith. He asks you to walk by faith. Not by sight, not by understanding, but by faith. To trust him, to trust that he's in control, to trust that he's good, and to trust that he is working all things for the good of those who love him. Have faith in that. You don't have to understand all the rest. You don't even have to like all the rest. But you understand that God's in control. He's good. He's loving. He's kind. He has a good plan for his people. Even if my little teeny tiny pea brain can't calculate exactly what's happening in the moment or in history, that doesn't mean God doesn't have a good plan for his people. And that brings us to the last truth. Because in the fullness of time, God sent his son Jesus, to be the true king of Israel. Jesus suffered and died at the hands of violent men to save sinners from their sins. Look what the prophet Isaiah says. Isaiah 53, the greatest messianic prophecy in all the Old Testament. Isaiah 53, verse 8 says, By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off 
out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. They made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence. And there was no deceit in his mouth. Look what Jesus himself says in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 8. Jesus had insight into Isaiah 53. He knew why he had come. Mark 8, verse 31 says, He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. He just looks at the disciples and he says, They're going to do violent stuff to me. It's going to be bad. But like Tony prayed just a minute ago, Even though their violence is wicked and even though they're going to kill me and even though they're going to put me in the ground, after three days, I'm going to rise from the dead. Peter looked back on all of this. You can read this in 1 Peter 3. And he says that the suffering of Jesus at the hands of violent men brought us to God. You want to ask what in the world's going on in a moment of wickedness and darkness and blackness. You look at the cross where the sinless Son of God, who had never been deceitful, who had never been violent, was slaughtered at the hands of wicked, wicked, violent men. God had a good plan in that moment. And that good plan is that the death of his Son would bring his people back into a relationship with him. In a lot of ways, when you read these verses, you look at Jesus and you say, he's the anti-Jehu. He commits no violence, and yet violence is committed against him. And there's a consequence for what happens. The consequence, the result of all of that is that sinful people are brought back into relationship with God. He's the opposite of Jehu. But the story doesn't end in Mark 8. We read earlier from Revelation 19. Just take your Bible and turn back to Revelation 19. Here's the honest truth. As horrific as the story of Jehu is, and it's horrific, it absolutely pales in comparison to the picture the Bible paints of the final judgment. Pales in comparison. The book of Revelation is talking about Jesus coming back to this earth, not as a suffering servant like Isaiah promised, not as one who would be killed and buried and then raised on the third day like Jesus talked about in Mark 8, but as the king of kings and as the Lord of lords. And there will be violence. It will be horrific in some respects on that last day. In fact, when you read what the book of Revelation says about the return of Jesus Christ, the story of Jehu pales in comparison. There's nothing compared to what we're reading about here. We read Revelation 19, 11 to 18. We left off with Jesus being the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Let's just read the rest of chapter 19 as we close. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun with a loud voice. He called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, come gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. 
I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. The beast was captured, with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Let's pray.